Um, obviously, we're continuing in 1 Corinthians. Um, we've been unpacking Paul's defense of scriptural service in chapter 12, where he has been correcting the Corinthians' corrupted views of the spiritual gifts that Christians receive through the Spirit and putting those gifts to use in Christian service. We've been camped out on our third main point, the diversity of spiritual gifts, and literally walking through the list of nine spiritual gifts that Paul put in our passage. And last Sunday, we began to look at the spiritual gift of tongues in verse 10D. And I mean, we learned a lot. And I, never in my recaps do I go through everything, but we learned quite a bit. And the main thing that I think we really focused on is the meaning of the word tongues in, in the New Testament, especially regarding human speaking. And that was glossa. I don't know how many times I said the word last week, but Rachel's like, we'll never forget that one. Because uh, it was probably like a hundred times, but glossa. Um, and we learned that in 1 Corinthians, in the New Testament, and even in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the LXX, um, this Greek noun, wherever it appears in a context of speaking, it, it always means human languages. Glossa always means human languages. Now, it can refer to the tongue in terms of the muscle in your mouth. Um, it can refer to the way someone speaks if they have a sharp tongue. Uh, but whenever it's used in the context of humans speaking, it's, it's always human languages. There's no other... There's no other languages represented in our Bible other than human languages. So it wouldn't make much sense to have other languages in there since it's God's word to human beings. But that's the meaning, human languages. <clears throat> um, just like here in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10d. So the spiritual gift of glossa or tongues is and always has been the supernatural ability to speak in unlearned human languages, as demonstrated primarily on the day of Pentecost. That's where you probably get your best example of what tongues is. When the 120 came down out of the room and began to speak the gospel in languages they did not know, people that understood those languages from all over the world were there to worship and they heard the gospel in their own tongues. That's probably the best Example and the precedent that's set for what tongues is throughout the rest of the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, verses 4 to 11, obviously. And I don't want to sound like I'm beating a dead horse by talking about tongues for weeks and weeks and weeks, but since there's so much confusion about it, I think we need to give it as much treatment as we can right now. And I'm not sure that that's Paul's point in the text. He's just rifling through nine spiritual gifts to show that they're all given by the Spirit of God. But I thought this would be a good time to at least talk about those things more so, and that's why we're doing it. But like I said, I don't want to wear you down with them and give the subject more time than is necessary, but with so much confusion about what tongues are, I think it's necessary. So we'll probably, we'll have obviously today on the subject and then a little bit on the subject next Sunday, Lord willing, and then we'll also talk about the last, the ninth spiritual gift that's listed there. So that's kind of where we're going today. And next week. Uh, if you guys could take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10d again. Every week, right? Again and again and again. <clears throat> I'd like to pray before we get to work. 
Lord, just um, open our eyes and ears to your word and help us understand what this is. Um, these are things that, as in all of scripture, we, we want to get things right. And you know, we're not trying to condemn people that, that don't get them right or have a different view. That's not our angle. We just, for ourselves, I think we, we understand and know and desire to, to get your word right. And I think your word's a lot clearer than some give it credit for. But just help us to, to listen today and to understand, to comprehend, to apply, to live it out. And uh, it's not, a, the issue that we're dealing with is not, it can be a divisive or divisive issue, but it's not a, it is a doctrinal issue, but it's not to the point of rendering someone saved or unsaved. Although sometimes certain behaviors are characterized by those who aren't saved. Um, and so I, we don't want to try to divide with people who have a different take on this. Um, but we do sincerely desire to get it right to the best of our ability and to honor you with all things. So we commit the time to you, Lord, and ask for your help now and that you be glorified through this message. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're just circling back, back to H. Tongues continued is what I'm saying. Tongues continued verse 10d, and I'll just read it again. He's, remember, he's going through the list. The Spirit gives this gift, the Spirit gives this gift, and then he says in 10d, to another various kinds of tongues. Last Sunday, I identified three potential responses from defenders of the non-lingual, non-human tongues. As I've been saying over the course of several weeks, there's people that believe that tongues means ecstatic speech and um, non-human speech, like it's some kind of a supernatural angelic language. And so whenever you make the arguments that I've been making, you're going to get resistance by those who hold a different position. And last week I gave some potential responses from those who would say, no, 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 I think it's ecstatic angelic languages or whatever. Um, in defense of secret non-human prayer languages and Angelic languages, they might take us to places like 1 Corinthians 14.2. And we did a brief language and contextual study of the verse and learned that it, it does not appear to support secret non-human prayer languages or anything like that. One of the biggest points that I made at that juncture was that, you know, the idea of a secret language that you would pray into God is really bizarre that anyone would land there, especially when in the Bible, everywhere you have people praying to the Lord, it's in their tongue, their language. There's no example of anyone hiding in a closet going Shanda Kanda Banda or what, anything like that. Read the Psalms. It's full of prayers to God and they're in intelligible languages. So there's no example in scripture anywhere where we have anyone praying to God in anything other than their native tongue. So, um, and they would take us to 1 Corinthians 14 too and try to argue uh, in defense of angelic tongues, they might even take us to 1 Corinthians 13, 1, which is really the launch point for that argument. And we did of course the same thing, a brief language and contextual study of that verse, and we learned that it does not appear to support angelic languages or, or kind of anything like that at all. He's using hyperbole, he's using anthropomorphic language to prove a point. Um, they see that if I speak in the tongues of angels, there's now an entire theology and doctrine built upon that one short saying. There's nothing like it anywhere else in scripture. 
In fact, whenever we see angels interacting with people or people with angels, they're always speaking in the native tongues. But based on that one little tiny three or four word verse, three or four word verse, we've got an entire theology of angelic tongues now that's not supported by any other scripture. So we kind of dismantled that argument um, in defense of the charismatic doctrine of baptism of the Holy Spirit and the spiritual gifts that allegedly accompany that. They might take us to Acts 19.6 where we see Paul laying hands on somebody and praying and somebody receiving the Spirit. And uh, we did obviously the same thing, a brief language and contextual study there and found out that the verse doesn't promote any additional baptism of the Holy Spirit beyond the baptism of regeneration. It doesn't support anything like somebody going through some kind of a ritual and, you know, and then receiving the spiritual gift of tongues. And I think we even added to that that in most of the circles where tongues are used, it's an ecstatic kind of language they call heavenly or angelic, and it's literally taught to people. They'll tell you, now put your head back and say, Shanda, Kanda, ba. They're teaching people to speak in this. And, and you, just nothing like that in Scripture. There's never anything like that in Scripture. It's not something that can be learned. It was a supernatural occurrence. And then, like I said, glossa restricts the meaning to human languages. So if you're going to teach somebody how to speak in Spanish, you're teaching them to speak in another tongue. That's literally how that would work. But when you tell them to duck their head back, and we have stories of people we know that, you know, went to the house or wherever, and they were taught to speak in tongues. And it's uh, entertaining, to say the least. Uh, nothing like that in Scripture. Never, never anything like that. So those were three arguments, potential arguments in defense of the ecstatic speak, speech or the, you know, radical gibberish, whatever you want to call it. Um, in addition to this, I, I say these things to give you a refresher on last week because I wanted to make one more argument for just for the sake of argument before we transition. And this is what's really cool about a subject like this is it's not about dragging it out. It's just about saying as much as you can over the course of several weeks because Lord knows we can't do it all in one sermon. But in addition, in addition to these arguments, <clears throat> um, oh, wrapping up on the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, add this to that. In addition to the idea of going to Acts 19.6, there's only two other texts that charismatics go to to support the baptism of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands, and they go to Acts 8.14 to 25 and Acts 9.17. In those two texts, because they, they say if you're baptized in the Spirit, you'll speak in tongues. In those two texts, there's the appearance of some kind of ritual of baptism of the Spirit. Paul lays his hands on someone, Ananias lays his hands on someone, and they receive the Spirit. That's what they call baptism of the Spirit. But in both of those instances, there's no speaking in tongues. Neither Paul, when he receives his sight back, he doesn't ramble off in gibberish, and um, it just doesn't happen there. So kind of the nail in the coffin for me on this baptism of the Spirit idea. Now I want to transition um, begin today's message by raising one more potential objection before we move on. Lastly, the defenders of non-human, in uh, just non-human tongues, non-language tongues, they might take us to this passage, and, and it was Dustin that reminded me of this, and I was like, thank you for adding to my sermon, Dustin. And they're not here today, they're, they're doing something together as a family, but Mark 16, 17, maybe this text might have come to mind to you last week as I was... Uh, arguing, I guess, or whatever you call it. And it says this, 
And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, this is Jesus speaking, in my name they will cast out demons, and they will speak in new tongues. Uh, this, is a, this is a big one that folks in this camp use in defense of the idea of new languages being spoken by Christians who are either baptized by the spirit, in the Spirit or whatever. They literally say that this verse proves unequivocally that the Holy Spirit imparts a spiritual gift that enables believers to speak in tongues that are entirely new to this world. Tongues that have never even been heard of or never seen or read or spoken or anything like that. This is like entirely new languages. And that's just, uh, that's just amazing to me. The idea here is that what Jesus is promoting is that within his people, new languages, new literal languages, never seen, never heard, never written, will literally be spoken through his people. That's, that's, that's how they interpret that verse. Now, there are at least three major problems with this interpretation. First, and this is where we're beating a dead horse, because this is like the same, gosh, Phil, can you get a life? Yeah, I've got one. It's in Christ, by the way. First, the word tongues is glossa. <laughs> it's just, what a thought, you know. In this context, as in every other context pertaining to human languages and human speaking, always refers to what? Human languages. Okay. Okay, fine. Then this is the introduction of new human languages. Okay, if you want to take it there. So the first point is that it's glossa again. It's human languages. It's not some other kind of language. It's not angelic or ecstatic speech or something else. Second, the Greek word for new is kainos. Kainos, right? New tongues, the text says. New tongues. Kainos, and it is the most commonly used Greek word for new in the New Testament. Ah, it's everywhere, you know. It's in New Testament. I, just, I mean, it's everywhere. And sometimes it is used to describe something that is literally brand new. Right? Literally brand new. Absolutely brand new. A brand new car. Kainos. It's something that is literally brand new. A uh, great example from Scripture where we see it used is uh, where Jesus' body was buried in the rich man's tomb. That tomb was brand new. It had been dug out for this rich man, never used by anyone else. It's kind of nice when you get buried in a fresh tomb. Look over and Fred's in there. You're like, this is, this is, a, this is a rental tomb. What is this? Matthew 27, 60. That's a new tomb that he was buried in Kynos. So sometimes it's used to describe something that is absolutely new, unused. And then sometimes it is used to describe something that already exists but was previously unknown to certain people. <laughs> like in Mark 16, 17. The tongues Jesus spoke of there, they will speak in new tongues, were not languages that would be literally new to the world, but regular human languages that would be new to those who now were able to supernaturally speak them. That's the meaning of kainos here. If I start speaking in Spanish, is that a brand new language to the world? No, 
Is it a brand new language to me? You're darn tootin'. That's the idea. Okay, that's what Jesus is saying. So first argument I would say against that is glossa always means human languages. Secondly, I'd say, yeah, it means new, but new to the people. They never spoke. Some of those guys on the day of Pentecost were down there speaking in languages. They didn't know. They were new to them. That's the idea. And then my third <clears throat> hammer blow against this bizarre interpretation would be that these are the actual words of Jesus which predate, precede Pentecost. Jesus made this prophetic statement before the day of Pentecost. It's a prophecy coming through Jesus, and it's not even a new prophecy to him. He's just quoting in his own words the prophecy of Joel that speaks of these things. It is a prophecy concerning Pentecost, the day in which God would pour out the Holy Spirit and give spiritual gifts to the apostles and to all believers for all time. That's the trigger point. The launch day is the day of Pentecost. Jesus is talking about that day in Mark 16, 17. What he was doing is he was promising what the church will receive on the day of Pentecost. All the spiritual gifts, including kainos, <coughs> including kainos glossa. The supernatural ability to speak in languages that were new, not to the world itself, but to the individuals now supernaturally speaking them. So when we combine these three facts, right, you've got glossa, human languages, you've got new to certain individuals, not new to the world, and then you've got it being the affirmation of a prophecy through Jesus in promising what people would receive, the ability to speak in new languages they did not know. Once you combine these three indisputable facts. Uh, it's just this whole interpretation of this being outer world new languages, just sayonara. It's gone. Also, there's no examples in scripture of believers speaking in new to this world languages. I, can you tell me, can you give me an example, especially from the New Testament where we have new languages, new to this world languages being introduced through Christians, we don't have anything even remotely close to that in the scripture. We don't, have, we don't see anything like that pre or post Pentecost. So that was one more argument against <coughs> the supporters of non-lingual tongues and new tongues and angelic tongues and all that. So that's four arguments we made against it, and I think they're pretty solid, not because I made them, but because I found them in various commentaries. Thank you very much. Good stuff. Now, earlier we read that spiritual gifts are given by the Spirit for what? The common good. That's for the benefit of the body of Christ. The gifts are given to be used in the building up of Brian and Shelley and Cameron and me and Bill and sweet Caroline, who builds me up all the time with her absolute sweetness and the sweetness that she bakes all the time. <laughs> she is the baking queen, right? So the gifts are given so we can build one another up. They're for the common good of the church. We did read that earlier on. Uh, I think it was chapter 12, verse 7. And since tongues appears on Paul's list here, it too must be viewed in this way as a gift that is intended to, for the common good or for the building up, the mutual upbuilding of the church. 
So when you think of tongues, it was something that was intended to be used by the recipient of the supernatural gift to build up. So that, again, disqualifies the idea of secret prayer languages or communicating with angels. That's not doing anything for the church. But that's not my point. In the New Testament, in other locations in the New Testament, we see tongues. In chapter 12, 7, it's for the common good, but we see it in other places for other purposes. In other words, common good is not the only purpose of tongues. It has multiple purposes, which makes it kind of unique because sometimes one particular gift just does one thing. But tongues has multiple purposes. Uh, we see one of these in 1 Corinthians 14, 22. It says, listen to this. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So he does kind of a juxtaposition there. He describes what tongues are. They're not intended to be a sign to believers, but to unbelievers. But prophecy, on the other hand, is entirely directed at believers and not unbelievers. <clears throat> he is telling us that tongues are a sign to unbelievers. Now, this doesn't override or disqualify another, the other purpose of it being for the common good. It's just another purpose. <clears throat> and this is exactly what we see in Acts 2 and probably in Acts 10. In Acts 2, we see a, a great multitude of unbelievers gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, right? And we're, again, we're going back to the day of Pentecost. Again, it's the starting point for all this and a great reference point. And when the people that were there heard a handful of uneducated Galileans speaking about the mighty works of God in their native tongues, they were kind of, their minds were blown because they knew these elementary level Galilean fishermen and all that, whom the apostles were, they, they knew they weren't educated in all these languages. They knew they were just common folks like, you know, Central Valley people or whatever, like me, you or whatever. And they're literally blown away when they're hearing the mighty works of God proclaimed in their tongues, Parthian, Elamite, Ar uh, even Arabic was one language that was spoken on that day. And it says that it was a sign to them. When, when these believers spoke in glossa, it was meant to serve as a sign, because we're now talking about tongues as a sign, to the unbelievers who were present on Pentecost and hearing now the mighty works in their own languages. It was a sign. Acts 2, 5 to 13. It was a sign that certain messianic prophecies were being fulfilled right there in their midst. Acts 2, 17 uh, through 21, Isaiah 32, 15, and 44, verse 3, Ezekiel 36, verse 27, Joel 2, 28 to 32, Matthew 24, verse 29, and so on. These people are speaking in tongues. Others are there interpreting and hearing. It is a sign to them of messianic prophecies literally being fulfilled. All those verses support that. And not just a sign of prophecies being fulfilled, but also a sign to the unbelievers that God's plan of redemption included not just Jews, but people from every tribe and tongue, verses 7 to 9. Just stop and think about that. You're at a Jewish celebratory event, and all of a sudden, some Jewish people begin to supernaturally speak in languages they do not know that are languages that Gentiles, non-Jews, speak. 
God is showing a sign on Pentecost that my salvation is not just for this group, but for every tribe and tongue, for Parthians and Medes and everyone else. So you have it as a sign that messianic prophecies are being fulfilled, and you have it as a sign that his salvation is much broader than the Jews. And believe it or not, today even Jews still hold that salvation is just for us. No Gentiles can ever be saved. So you have it functioning, tongues functioning as a sign. <clears throat> it's an amazing occurrence that we see there. And when this is playing out in real time, Peter seizes the moment. He describes the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy from Joel right there in their midst. And he... Um, he basically presents the universality of the gospel, right? He's preaching the gospel and he's applying it to everyone there. Every tribe and tongue is represented in a sense. And the result is as the spirit attends the preaching and moves in power, 3,000 souls repent of their unbelief. They get baptized. They get saved. Acts 2, 22 to 41. <coughs> so... Tongues are a sign. In Acts 10, 23 to 44, we see Peter, and it's, it's always Peter. He's just, the guy's everywhere. He's like Brandon Renfro, my buddy. Every time I look around, I see that guy somewhere. He's like the Peter of our day, right? Good guy. In Acts 10, 23 to 44, we see Peter with members of the circumcised group from Joppa at the home of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. That's not a name you hear anymore, huh? What would you call him as a nickname? Hey, Corny. That would not be good. While Peter was preaching the gospel to Cornelius, to, to old Corny and, and his household, and they're all unbelievers, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word, it says, and Cornelius and his household began to speak in languages or a language or tongues, glossa, that they did not know. Now, it was probably Hebrew since Peter's entourage understood what these folks were saying. And they marveled as they sat there and listened to Cornelius and the others extol God in the tongue or language they understood, which was not a language that Cornelius and his house had learned. Acts 10, 45 to 46. What am I saying? I'm saying that tongues served as a sign in that particular instance, to Peter's doubtful associates, those legalistic messianic Jews who were not convinced that God's plan of redemption included uncircumcised Gentiles. What I see happening in Cornelius' house is that God has kind of recreated like a mini Pentecost right there under this roof. You, you have the same thing happening under the roof of a Gentile that you had at Solomon's portico in the temple a few years earlier. And people are speaking languages they don't know. It's a sign that the Spirit is there moving in power. It's a sign and a correction and a rebuke against those who doubted the Gentiles could be saved. Again, playing off of that on the day of Pentecost, we have tongues as a sign that messianic prophecies are being fulfilled, that... God's plan of redemption includes Parthian and all these other languages and people groups. Paul says in 1422 of 1 Corinthians that tongues are assigned to unbelievers. These are two scenarios where we see that exactly playing out. 
There's a little mini Pentecost playing out. I'll tell you what, those Judaizers, those early Judaizers who were there, they were convicted by it because they saw these Gentiles acting just like they were on Pentecost, and they were convinced that God's plan was broader. But it was a sign. And not only a sign, but tongues also served as a judgment. Okay? So tongues aren't just for the common good. They're not just a sign. They're also for judgment. Is this not what we see at the Tower of Babel? Hmm? It's exactly what we see at the Tower of Babel. Did you know that at that point in human history, all people spoke the same language? There was one language in the entire world at that point. Everybody spoke the same language. Okay, what language was it? I don't know. Probably English. It's everywhere. It wasn't English. And if it was, it would have been ye and thou. And I don't know what language it was, but um, there was one language spoken by everyone. But when all the inhabitants of the world chose to remain, and this is where everyone in the world lived at the time was in this region, and they all spoke one language, they all lived in this region. This is after the flood, by the way, so there wasn't like billions of people, but there was still a lot. And it was years after the flood, but all of the people of the world lived in the same region, <clears throat> and they all chose to stay in that region, which was called Shinar. What they were supposed to do is increase in number and go out and fill the earth. Genesis 9-1. So, so that's what people were supposed to do post-flood. Multiply, fill the earth, but all the people of the world stayed in one place and spoke one language. And that's not all they did. They knew they were rebelling against Genesis 9-1, God's command to multiply and spread. And so what they did in absolute rebellion against God is they stayed put and they decided to build a tower that reached up into the heavens. This tower is known as the Tower of Babel and it was the birthplace of all mystery religion, but really what it was was just one big act of rebellion. We are staying where we want to stay and we're going to build a tower that climbs up there and we're going to worship here. And what happened in that moment? God unleashed divine judgment upon them, didn't he? How did he judge them? He severed their ability to communicate with one another by introducing different tongues. All of a sudden, everyone spoke different languages and couldn't communicate. I have no idea what Bill, Fred, sorry, Bill, Fred, there's no Freds. I, 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 knew, I used to talk to Fred all the time. I have no idea what he's saying these days. Everybody here, all the members of the world, their languages are tossed into chaos. They, they're all speaking different languages now. Nobody can communicate. Somebody's given orders to fix the scaffolding on the Tower of Babel, and he can't understand them. So somebody falls off and gets killed. I don't know. No OSHA back then, right? He literally severs their ability to communicate with one another. And you stop and think about that in terms of a judgment. That's tongues in the form of a judgment. Would that not be a harsh judgment? If you cannot communicate with people and you're all united on this one front trying to construct this project and dominate the world here and you can't communicate, you're not going to get very far. 
language barriers disrupt everything. And they didn't have pocket translators and iPhones, right? If they did, they'd have like the earliest form of Verizon, which wouldn't have worked. They just didn't have any of this stuff. He judges them by bringing and introducing new languages. And this led to what? Absolute confoundment, disbursement, and the abandonment of the Tower of Babel, right? It became the strip mall that never got finished because, you know, the developer ran out of money. Genesis 11, 1 to 9. That is a perfect example of tongues being used as a judgment. We also see tongues as a judgment against God's covenant people, the Jews. The speaking of tongues sliding back to Pentecost again, especially by non-Jews, demonstrated that both Jerusalem and unbelieving Jews were under divine judgment. It wasn't at Pentecost that God scrambled languages like he did at Babylon. It was that he had people speaking languages the Jews did not know, which was a sign of the gospel is going to go to people who will listen. And they don't speak the same language as you. So it was a, it was a judgment against the Jews on the day of Pentecost, similar to how it was a judgment against all the people of the world back at Babel. So, tongues are a judgment. Common good, sign, judgment. And then, tongues also served as a reversal of judgment. Mm, interesting, huh? Where do we see this? At Pentecost again. Oh, everything just centers on that day. That, that day was far more important than we could ever imagine. Listen to what Sam Waldron wrote concerning this point of them being a reversal of judgment. This is really fascinating what he says. And I would say, if you get your hands on anything from Sam Waldron, his stuff is just brilliant. <clears throat> He's a pastor in Owensboro, Kentucky, which is right down the street from where my sister-in-law lived. And I've been telling her, you need to go to his church. But he's also a professor, and he's, he's brilliant. And he says this, Tongues mark the reversal of Babel and the universality of the new covenant. The curse of Babel divided the nations by imposing different languages. When on the day of Pentecost, the word of God was proclaimed in many tongues, this was a sign that the curse of Babel was now being reversed. Many nations and peoples were to be reconciled to the one Christ and his work of redemption. Thus, what was a judgment to the Jews was at the same time a blessing on Gentiles. I think that's a really, really good summation of what happens. So, the innate, like at Babylon, people all of a sudden, dramatically and supernaturally, are speaking languages that nobody can know. There's a breakdown in communication. But on Pentecost, we see the reversal of that. People are hearing the gospel in their own tongues, in their own languages. God doesn't scramble. He puts the scrambling back together so people can hear the word. You see how it's a reversal? It's astonishing. Sinclair Ferguson said something very similar. He said, for Paul, tongues serve partly as the sign of God's judgment on his covenant people. What marks the reversal of Babel and indicates the universality of the new covenant also signals judgment on the covenant people for their rejection of Christ. Babel reversed is, in another sense, Jerusalem judged. So he's saying that it's twofold. 
It's a double-edged sword. It's the reversal of judgment against Gentiles who were scrambled at Babel, and then it's a judgment on Jews who could not understand the languages at Pentecost. So that's a fascinating point, I think. Point being that tongues also served as the reversal of judgment, the enablement for people to hear the gospel in their own languages. What these two men, Ferguson and, and uh, Waldron, are basically saying is that when the spiritual gift of tongues was unleashed by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and people began to speak in languages they did not know and there was also interpretation and understanding by those who did know those languages, the judgment against Babel or against Gentiles in general was being reversed and placed upon the Jews. Think of it like this. At Pentecost, unbelieving Jews experienced a type of Babel judgment as the apostles spoke in tongues they did not understand. <coughs> but at the same time, this judgment was being lifted among non-Jewish foreigners as they were able to hear the gospel in their own tongues. That's what these men are saying. So you can see how it is used as a judgment and the reversal of judgment. To the Jews who refused to listen to the gospel, the language barrier of God's judgment went up. But to the non-Jews, the Gentile foreigners who were present there for the feast, that language barrier came down. And this is exactly what Paul had in mind when he declared, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen, Acts 28, 28. They will listen. Now, of course, that's God's work in their hearts, but they will listen. And they will be able to hear it in their languages, even supernaturally at certain points through these tongues. This is also why Paul calls the Jews' refusal to listen to repent, to trust in Christ. He calls it riches for the world. And more particularly, riches for the Gentiles. Romans 11, 11 to 12. In summary, we have learned that tongues is glossa. And when it appears in the context of speaking, it refers to human languages. It's just what it is. We just need to be settled on this point. And, and people will try to argue that it means ecstatic languages, it means something else, uh, it means angelic languages and these sorts of things. To be honest with you, I, I, would, I would be open to listening to those arguments, but they need to come from Scripture and not some kind of tradition. And I just, I, I land where I land because of this. Not because, and whenever you say these things, people say, oh, you're just following John MacArthur. I don't follow John MacArthur on everything. I rarely listen to the guy. I don't, everyone acts like I built a room at my house where he stays on the weekends. <laughs> this is not John MacArthur's view that I'm trying to, you know, expound or espouse. This is what I believe the scriptures teach. He just happens to agree with me. <laughs> right? Huh? I, I got off the phone with the guy last week and he's like, what are you going to do? I'm going to go with tongues as a glow center. Okay, I'll do that this Sunday too. And, you know, he doesn't know who I am. I'm a shimp. <coughs> but I just want to summarize, and this message will be shorter today. <coughs> In summary, as we've been moving through the subject over the course of several weeks, we have learned that the Greek word for tongues is glossa. And when it appears in the context of speaking, it means human languages. First Corinthians affirms this. The entire New Testament affirms this. The Septuagint. 
Septuagint affirms this. These three sections of biblical literature, the Word of God, the revelation of God, they all demonstrate the same meaning of glosa. Nothing else, whenever it's used in the context of speaking, it's just human languages. And I think somebody said last week, well, all we've ever had are human languages. And I'm like, yes, it's really that simple. It's really that simple. So, I mean, if you watch Dr. Doolittle, I guess he had languages with the animals. So maybe, right? Okay, and another thing in summary, according to scripture, tongues served how many purposes? Not just one, four, right? They were for the common good of the church, building up. But that's not all they were for. They were a sign to unbelievers. They were a judgment. Nowhere than in Genesis with the Tower of Babel is this demonstrated better. And then I would say also on the day of Pentecost. So common good, sign to unbelievers, a judgment, and then the reversal of judgment. And we see the reversal of this judgment, the reversal of Babylonian or Babel judgment on Pentecost. Now, with these purposes, at least these four purposes, there might be more. I, I've only found the four. But with these purposes in mind, it's definitely for me and probably some of you, it's hard to imagine that the spiritual gift of tongues would still be operative today. Right? I mean, if you just stop and think about the purposes, common good, sign, judgment, the reversal of judgment, wouldn't we be willing to say that the judgment and reversal of judgment's done? That ended on Pentecost? Yes. And what about a sign to unbelievers? Could it still be serving that purpose? Possibly. But there's no better sign to unbelievers than the Word of God. So I don't think we need that. Um... Of the four purposes for tongues, there's only one that would seem relevant for today, that tongues would still be going, that seems relevant for that argument, that seems potentially possible or needed, and that would be for the upbuilding or common good, right? Right? You're thinking of the four purposes, and we're thinking of for today. Well, three of them, I don't think we need three of them today, but maybe for the common good, that would be a rationale for having tongues for today. Right? That, this is the way my brain works. This is the way I'm pondering and considering this. I, I think that's the only potentially needed reason for tongues today. And, and then when I stop and think about every example of tongues that I've witnessed over the last 20 years has never had anything to do with building up believers. How does running around a room yelling in ecstatic speech that nobody can understand and there's never a translation, how is that helping anyone in that congregation? And that's all I've ever seen. Now you might say, well, I'll tell you, I you know, attended a church for a while and you know, there, I actually saw it where it was helpful. There was a, you know, somebody spoke and I don't know, something, and there was somebody there to, to, to say what they were saying. There was interpretation. Well, in my mind, that would at least give more justification for tongues being ongoing if it seems more legit. But 
I do understand this as a logical thinker that since gibberish is not a language, it's impossible to have an interpretation of it. <laughs> How do you interpret gibberish? Well, children do that. When you have a young child, he speaks in his own way, and then only the one-year-old older brother knows what he's saying. Oh, he just said he filled his diaper. Oh. <laughs> but he's not speaking gibberish. He's speaking a very elementary level English or whatever, but or Spanish. Point being, I'd like, if, if there's only one reason for it to be around today, and that would be the upbuilding, I'd like to see examples of that. And that's not something that's being displayed anywhere that I can think of. The signs have already gone up and been recorded in Scripture. The same is true concerning the judgments, the, the reversal of Babel judgment against non-Jews or Gentiles. That's, that's all done. All these other purposes are complete. Could be that tongues are still operative today and will remain operative until there's no further need for them, right? They would be operative until Christ comes back because when he comes back, that's when perfection occurs and there's no need for any upbuilding or anything. To be quite honest with you, I would be okay with tongues being for today. I would. Oh, maybe he's not like MacArthur. Well, when I say I'd be okay with them for today, what I'm telling you is that I'd be convinced from Scripture that they're from today and I see them practiced properly. I'm not going to be okay with them if they're not the right thing. But I'm telling you that if they were for today, I would be okay with them. How could I not? I don't want to oppose the word. Do you want to oppose the word? No. But we mustn't forget what tongues are. Glow, suh. <laughs> human languages. If something other than human languages are used, I think it's wise to rule that out as false tongues. I think it's wise. I think the scripture is clear. And I think it's okay for people to disagree with me. I don't take issue with them. It's not a battlefield doctrine. Tongues are not essential. Unless, of course, a person tries to argue that saved people have to speak in tongues. Kind of like from the letter I read last week. Unless believers go through the baptism of the Holy Spirit that's accompanied by the signs that come with it, they're not going to be able to make it through the, 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 the persecution that's coming. If somebody's going to say that, then I'm going to put on the gloves. Let's go. Because now you're saying that what I possess is not sufficient and that Christ, who has me in his grip, the Father who has me in his grip, there's a double grip over me. That's not sufficient. I've got to go through your phony baloney ritual. That's the only time I'm going to stand and contend. But beyond that, I'm, I'm just not even going to give it the time of day. If tongues leads to a departure from biblical salvation, because I think it does in some circles, then I'm not interested in hearing it. But there is another side to the coin. If a person claims to possess the gift of tongues... But their version, what they practice, doesn't appear to be supported by Scripture. They might actually be attributing something to the Holy Spirit that he does not give. And that is dangerous. Because every one of these people who does this gibberish thing says it's of and from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not give fake tongues. 
The Holy Spirit does not give the gift of fake tongues. The Holy Spirit does not give the gift of interpreting fake tongues. And we'll talk about interpretation next week. MacArthur, uh uh-oh, here we go. He says those who say that the Holy Spirit gave them these utterances and this gibberish and, and these sorts of things, he likens those who do this to Nadab and Abihu. Two young Aaronic priests who were executed by God for creating strange fire. Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. These men were charged with, with facilitating Israel's like very first worship service. And they were supposed to carry the censers uh, for, for the incense. And they were screwing around with it or something. They did something that was out of sequence or wasn't according to God's instruction. And God struck them dead. They were creating strange fire. They were attributing something to God that God did not instruct them to do concerning worship. We're talking about worship, aren't we? This whole section's been on carnal worship. Jesus warned against attributing things to the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit does not do, like associate with evil. You know the story, right, where Jesus has been performing tons of miracles and there's a group of legalistic Pharisees who were there who say that, somebody's saying, wow, this guy has the power of God and the Holy Spirit and he's, he's healing and doing all these miracles. And we know that when Jesus was baptized, the Spirit descended like a dove and came upon him and that's where he got his power to heal and power for miracles and these things. It wasn't necessarily through the deity because he is fully deity, but some of that I think he set aside as he condescended and came down here. But he received power and anointing and power through the Holy Spirit. Everything he did was through the Spirit. And now these Pharisees are saying he does these miracles by the power of Beelzebub. That's just another name for Satan. And Jesus says, those who blaspheme me can be forgiven, but those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. That's where we get our concept of the, right, the unpardonable sin. Everyone tries to say that has to do with unbelief. It doesn't have anything to do with unbelief. It has to do with attributing to the Holy Spirit what he does not do. In that context, they're saying the Spirit is evil. And Jesus responds by saying, you guys are damned, and there's nothing that can be done about it. He called it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The unpardonable sin, Matthew 12, 25 to 29. Is unbelief an unpardonable sin? Of course it is. Every sin is unpardonable if you're not in Christ and you die. There is no forgiveness after death. But the point I'm making is that in the Matthew text, men were attributing to the Holy Spirit something that he does not do. And with fake tongues, people are attributing something to the Holy Spirit that he does not do. Does this rise to the same level as what the Pharisees were doing? I don't think so. Honestly, I don't know. What I do know is that those who do it might be attributing things to the Spirit that he does not give. And the gibberish they speak is... Not only nonsense and false, 
but it is similar to the demonic mystery religions of antiquity because they spoke in the same gibberish. And it's true of the mystery religions of today who use the same gibberish, Hinduism and Buddhism. What am I saying? I'm saying that the gibberish that people speak is evil. And if you're saying that the Holy Spirit does it, what are you doing? Sounds a lot like Nadab and Abihu. It sounds a lot like the Pharisees. And this is why I hope I'm wrong. Because if I'm wrong, then I guess the charismatics are right and they're okay. But if I'm right, there's a whole lot of people that are in a lot of trouble with the Lord. How tragic would that be for anyone to be committing the unpardonable sin in the name of Christ? It's terrifying when you stop and think about it. There are 640 million Pentecostals worldwide. And I'd be willing to bet that the majority of them claim to speak in tongues. And there's probably a handful in there that speak regular languages, I suppose. But what have you witnessed? I have never heard human languages coming from them. I've heard people leaving on Hondas and everything else. She left on a Honda and just weird. I'm not trying to scare anyone. I'm not trying to damn our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. There's some out there that are brothers and sisters. I'm just trying to say, this, this is dangerous. That's all I'm saying. It's dangerous. We don't want to attribute something to God that he does not do. And maybe this is trivial. This subject is seemingly trivial compared to, like, literally associating the Holy Spirit with evil like those Pharisees did, but you're still tying something to him that he doesn't do. And it is associated with evil. The ecstatic tongues are. They're from the mystery religions. Mystery religions are evil. They're from Hinduism and Buddhism. They're evil. They're from yoga. Sorry, might make you feel good, but it's evil. It's just evil. It's rooted in mystery religion. And so I have grave concern for those who name the name of Christ and practice these things. I certainly hope that what they're doing does not rise to this level. In my mind, it seems like these folks are, at bare minimum, coming very, very close to the edge. As with the legendary southern rock band Molly Hatchet, they are flirting with disaster. Unless, of course, this particular view that I've been espousing for the last couple of weeks of tongues is incorrect, I just don't see how it is, according to what we keep seeing in Scripture. But unless it's incorrect. I hope, for the sake of so many, that tongues are more than human languages. Blasphemy, the Holy Spirit, is a perilous sin. I'd hate to see anyone destroyed by it. But until I and many others are convinced by Scripture to change our view, we will continue to recognize glossa as human languages. We will continue to recognize it for its four main purposes. We will continue to doubt or question, or at least try to understand how it could be for today. I don't understand why we would need something to build us up beyond this. Amen. Why would I need somebody to ramble off in a language? I mean, if it's for today, beautiful. But do I need that? I have this. And it seems to me that tongues or anything else would be in addition to this. And this is what I need. 2 Timothy 3. This makes the man or woman of God mature. Not tongues. 
This builds up. And again, I say this treading lightly because if they're for today, I don't want to oppose God. I just want to see them done right. The word of God makes us complete. We don't need something other than the word of God to make us complete. I would just say, closing, may we be content with our Bibles. May we use our spiritual gifts to build each other up. That's really the main purpose. And if any of these gifts are still going, it's still for that purpose, for the common good of the body, for the glory of God. That would be the purpose. Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk a little bit more about tongues and then shift into the ninth and final gift.